In addition to spending time with family and friends on Labor Day weekend, I try to be mindful each Labor Day in particular that that day is about much more than a three-day weekend, symbolically marking the end of summer, even if school has already started. The first Monday in September was originally set apart as a time to celebrate the labor movement's role in securing workers' rights. In the late 19th century, an increasing number of states increasingly recognized Labor Day as a holiday, culminating in Congress declaring Labor Day a federal holiday in 1894. And the struggles that Labor Day commemorates are not over. Our current economy, this will come as a shock to you, is not designed to allow everyone to be well-paid to do their dream job, right? Instead, to borrow a term from Karl Marx, the vast majority of human beings currently earn a living through what he called alienated labor, work that is not personally fulfilling necessarily, but that most must be done to have even a basic minimum of food and shelter. There's a whole other discussion to be had for those of us who do love our work, do not feel alienated from our labor, and our challenge is to draw boundaries for our long-term health to make and to make time for our families. As I I say to my congregation a few times a year, my goal is to do this job really well and stay married. (laughs) So, uh, but all of that is a sermon topic for another day. Turning our focus to the spirit of Labor Day, it can be easy to forget how much we owe to organized labor that came before us. As one popular bumper sticker says, from the people who brought you the weekend. That's the labor movement. Historically, many people used to spend 12 or more hours a day for six or seven days a week working in the fields, working in factories, doing very backbreaking work. But in the early 19th century and continuing for more than 100 years, working hours in America were actually gradually reducing, ratcheting down. The labor movement was um, cut in half by um, most accounts over that hundred years. The labor movement was pushing back against the exploitation of people, of workers. But here's another oft-forgotten twist, as Benjamin Honeycutt has detailed in his fascinating book that I recommend to you. It's called uh, Free Time, The Forgotten American Dream. It was published in 2013 by Temple University Press. He shows that in the late 19th century, extrapolating from the success that over that 100 years had actually cut uh, most people's labor in half, many of the best economists regularly predicted that, well, before the 20th century ends, a golden age of leisure will arrive. So you can see all these people predicting these things, and they were, of course, wrong. Uh, And it was said, no one will need to work more than two hours a day. Sounds like, do you remember that book, The Five-Hour Workweek, that came out a few years ago? For those forced to earn a living through alienated labor, working only two hours a day or a 10-hour workweek would mean actually having time to pursue the American dream, which isn't actually just more, more, more money, right? The American dream is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. 
Instead of returning home from work so exhausted that you can't do anything but, you know, watch a show on Netflix before going to bed and trying to drag yourself back out of bed and out the door for another day of alienated labor. Labor activists did help secure that five-hour work week, the people who brought you the weekend, and in some industries, even a six-hour work day. But starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, you had this huge success in the 19th century, but then starting with the Great Depression in the 1930s, the trend of shortening work hours reversed. A new emphasis arose on the perceived need to grow the economy through perpetually increasing um, consumer demand. What were we told after 9-11? Go shopping, right? Get the economy started again. So we find ourselves today working more to buy more stuff, but then ironically often not having time to do anything with that stuff because we're working all the time, much less spending time with our family and friends. In recent decades, the labor rights movement has continued to lose ground. Uh, I could go into detail about some recent Supreme Court decisions uh, that could have been worse, but were still pretty terrible. And in the early 21st century, many of us work not a 10-hour work week, but a 10- or 12-hour work day building to a 50- or 60-hour or more work week. Ironically, again, as our collective productivity at work has actually grown 72% over the past four decades, hourly compensation has grown 9%. Some of you may have seen that X graph that is the the correlation between the, the richest among us increasing and the rest of us decreasing. Again, a lot more to say about all of that as well. With the decline of the labor rights movement, many corporations now perceive themselves as not responsible to their workers, but to their shareholders. You saw recently with uh, these corporate uh, tax breaks that were given, uh, raises were not given to workers, dividends were paid to shareholders. And at the same time that labor rights for us human beings have been rolling back, we get Supreme Court decisions like Citizens United that are focused on corporations are allegedly people. You know, many of you have probably seen over the years various dystopian science fiction movies, and they often begin with like a scroll of catching you up on how we got to this terrible place. One of the things I would put in such a scroll about the future is, you know, in in this year, in the early 21st century, corporations were called people, and then da-da-da-da-da, you know, that's that's how the, the one more step toward, you know, corporate dystopia. So, uh, If anyone is curious, I'll readily grant, of course, that organized labor has also had its sizable share of of corruption in its history, but overall, the balance of political power in the U.S. has shifted drastically away from workers' rights. To name one vision for what could we choose to move toward that would be different as a society, I invite you to consider Article 23 in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights. Number one, Everyone has the right to work, to free choice of employment, to just and favorable conditions of work, and to protections against unemployment. Two, everyone without any discrimination has the right to equal pay for equal work. 
Number three, everyone who works has the right to just and favorable remuneration. That means you got to get paid, right? Ensuring for himself and her or her family an existence worthy of human dignity and supplemented, if necessary, by other means of social protection. Fourth and finally, everyone has the right to form and join trade unions for the protection of their interests. That is a beautiful vision. It would be a solid ground floor if it were respected for building up a labor rights movement in the 21st century. But I want to be honest with you this morning. The open secret, though it's not always named in the human rights movement, is that the concept of human rights is not this transcendental idea delivered from on high to the mountaintop and brought down on tablets. Like the um, social construct of inalienable rights, we're told in the Declaration of Independence, right, we had these inalienable rights. Like those inalienable rights, human rights, too, are actually a social construct, right? They're not handed down on high. They're an idea we came up with. In the terminology of historian uh, Yuval Harari, if any of you read his book Sapiens or the follow-up Homo Deus, it's excellent. Uh, he says, pretty bluntly, human rights are a fiction, now, that's not to say fiction isn't important, right? Fiction's really beautiful and creates meaning in our lives. But he says, it's important to be honest that human rights are a fiction. They're a particularly great piece of fiction, but they are nonetheless something we humans made up. Of course, another open secret is that all ethics and morality are socially constructed, as evidenced by the ways that social mores shift over time and from society to society. But that is definitely the topic for another sermon. Uh, here's the way that political science professor Jack Donnelly puts it in his widely regarded textbook about human rights published by Cornell University Press. He says that human rights ultimately rest on the social decision to act as if such things existed. And then through social action directed by these rights to make real the world that they envision. This does not make human rights arbitrary, per se, in the sense that they rest on choices that might as well have been random, nor are they merely conventional in the same way that driving on the left is required in Britain. Like all social practices, human rights come with, and in a certain sense require, justifications. Those justifications, however, appeal to so-called foundations that are ultimately a matter of agreement or assumption rather than a you know, proof in math. So while there is no guarantee that human rights will be respected, indeed they often aren't, including by our own government, there is immense value in advocating for a world order based on universal human rights. And although human rights are not inevitable, the power of human rights lies in the fact that human rights are by definition inalienable. So they're not inevitable, they are inalienable. There is nothing anyone can do or to make anyone more or less um, worthy of their human rights. Notice that word alien, 
in the middle of that word inalienable. There is, from the perspective of the human rights movement, your human rights cannot be made alien to you. That's why there's nothing, that's why you, you can't t- torture even terrorists, right? So speaking of the memory of John McCain, that's something he very boldly stood up to, even right in the wake of 9-11 with immense pressure from the George W. Bush administration. He said, no, it is against, it's wrong. Torture is wrong, period, to anyone. Uh, they are universal equal rights for all human beings without exception. As with our UU first principle, the inherent worth and dignity of some people. No, of every person. At the root of human rights is our belief and our deep value that all human beings, no matter who, no matter what, deserve minimum conditions for a dignified life. That's part of what I was speaking about in the, in the reflection, these sort of minimum things we need of to have a sturdy floor for all human beings to exist on. At the risk of belaboring the point, I want to emphasize that this concept, this value, which may seem incredibly obvious to we 21st century Western liberals, has been far from accepted by most human beings who have lived. Historically, the prevailing view has been much more frequently that the ones who are granted and treated with dignity, the ones perceived as having intrinsic worth, that was the elite the moneyed, the powerful few. It was not the serfs that had dignity. It was the king. Uh, so the royalty, the aristocracy, those at the top of various political, social, and religious hierarchies, the rest of us, the huddled masses, the commoners, the hoi polloi, we were much more often perceived either paternalistically as objects to be provided for, passive recipients of benefits, rather than creative agents with rights to shape our life as we see fit, or at worst as subhuman fodder for cannons, for cogs in the wheels of production as merely obstacles to the agendas of the powers that be. Too often the implication was that we commoners who lacked inherent worth and dignity should be grateful for anything we received from those who uh, had not only already stolen from us our birthright of equitable opportunities, but also believed they actually owed us nothing. This world debt view continues to underlie debates about whether our various social safety debts, are they entitlements, you know, just exploited by the takers? Indeed, scholars have shown that although, although there are various limited precursors, our modern conceptions of universal, international, global human rights uh, date back only about 70 years. This is a relatively new fiction. Uh, with the passage of the Universal Declaration of Human Rights in 1948, written in response precisely to the horrors of World War II, to witnessing what we human beings could do to each other at our worst. Uh, it was the, you know, the horrors, the authoritarianism, and the fascism of the Second World War, which so starkly demonstrated that there are no inevitable guarantees that human rights will be respected. And that motivated the passage of the UN Declaration of Human Rights in 48. 
And I find it incredibly significant to be part of this religious movement. And I don't think it's any, you know, looking at that history of being involved with universal salvation for all people, of, you know, universal freedom for all people, universal um, voting rights for all people, that with that heritage, I don't think it's a surprise that as a religious movement, our first principle directly draws from the opening of both the preamble and the first article of the UN Declaration of Human Rights. That preamble reads, very similarly to our first principle, quote, the recognition of the inherent dignity and of the equal and inalienable rights of all members of the human family, that that is the foundation of freedom, justice, and peace in the world. So you can see the ways our principles and sources are deeply woven in and influenced by the UN Declaration of Human Rights. The opening of Article 1 says, quote, All human beings are born free and equal in dignity and rights. They are endowed with reason and conscience and should act toward one another in a spirit of brotherhood. Sounds pretty UU, or should I say UUism sounds pretty human rightsy. So in light of these ideas we have been tracing, how might we best pursue the high bar like our sixth principle we were looking at earlier of world community with peace, liberty, and justice, not merely for some, but for all? One proposal is a global New Deal. So kind of looking at what happened in this country, a global New Deal for all people that would have at least five main parts. A global Marshall Plan, similar to the economic aid given to help rebuild European economies after World War II, that would include blanket forgiveness for third world debt. A tax on international financial transactions that would benefit the global South. Attack, uh, abolition of offshore financial centers that offer tax havens for wealthy individuals and corporations. You see, uh, some of you may remember that book, uh, Capital in the 21st Century by Thomas Piketty, the French economist. You know, he wrote about the only way we can really do this thing internationally is a global wealth tax. That we've got to, you have to track money, you can't have tax havens, and you have to have a global tax, not on income, but on wealth. And this is not to say that people, that I'm not espousing like radical egalitarianism. It's not that everyone has to be equal. But before some people get to be way up here, everyone has to have a sturdy floor. And uh, four, implementations of stringent global environmental agreements and implementation, finally, of a more equitable global development agenda. These are like super high bars to reach, right? But if we were to have any hope of achieving our goal of world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all, I invite you to consider it will require more than that bumper sticker slogan of think globally, act locally. While all, while acting locally will remain vital, there's that saying, all politics are local, that'll remain real. But the goal of world community will require us to both think globally and act globally. For instance, this goal again may require global welfare paid by for a global wealth tax. Along these lines, if you want to explore more about this, a Yale University professor of history and law recently published a a compelling book titled Not Enough, Human Rights in an Unequal World with Harvard University Press. Although Moyne admires the sturdy floor of the human rights movement seeking to carve out a basic minimum for everyone, he's come to view this goal as not enough. He says that human rights are actually the necessary but not sufficient ingredient for building the world we dream about. 
Moyne highlights that human rights, even perfectly realized human rights, are compatible with even radical inequality. He challenges us to wrestle with the question of whether we can truly have a world community with peace, liberty, and justice for all if we also allow not just some income and wealth inequality, but really radical income equality like we have today. This is not to say, again, that we need to have complete egalitarianism. I very much would readily grant that profit motive will likely remain a factor. We're human beings, right? Profit motive, selfishness, greed, that's all real. We should take that into account. But he is saying that extreme inequality is arguably incompatible with peace, liberty, and justice for all. Because extreme inequality of money and other resources, it puts too much power in the hands of too few people. Moyne's argument is that we need not only the sturdy floor of human rights to ensure a basic minimum of dignity for all, but a ceiling that is at some point to protect ourselves against extreme inequality. He calls us to save ourselves from our low ambitions, to set our sights higher if we were ever to have any chance of building the world we dream about. Along these lines, one touchstone that's become increasingly important for me for building the world we dream about is to invite people to consider the framework of a triple bottom line, people, planet, and profit. Profit's still in there. It's still a major factor. Some people are going to want to work harder and be rewarded more. Uh, so that is still a factor. But instead of seeing profit for stockholders as, as the only bottom line on which decisions will be made, which is often what we see today, uh, instead financial gains should be better balanced with people, with human rights, with labor rights, and more balanced with planet, with what is environmentally sustainable. That triple bottom line of people, planet, and profit is one vision of what a 21st century labor movement might look like. My hope on this Labor Day weekend has been to give us some frameworks for reflection. Understanding how much has actually changed in the past through the labor movement, moving from a 12-hour day and a six- or seven-day work week to an eight-hour day and a 40-hour work week, that was a massive achievement in the 19th century. Seeing that that change happened, we can begin to imagine the ways that our current relationship with work can also change for the future, so that increasing numbers of us might have less alienated labor and more time for the actual dream of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In that spirit, I invite you to rise and body your spirit. If you'll, you should have a pink handout in your order of service. You, some of you may, if you spend a lot any time around uh, union organizing, you know this song. Uh, if you haven't, I think you'll pick it up. It's actually the tune of John Brown's Body, the Battle Hymn of the Republic. We'll sing this first page with the music. And then you'll flip to the back and we'll sing the chorus. Note that verse 3 will be sung by any who identify as female in the audience. Uh, the rest of us will sing all the rest. <laughs>